just before we we began to sit today, I noticed that there's a no a new uh, book in the bookstore called "When the Buddha Was an Elephant," and um, there are 32 animal tales from the Jataka tales, children's stories from early on in this lineage. Long ago in the valley of the Himalayas, there lived a hermit who survived on the wild fruits he found there. One day, a beautiful fawn, having lost her mother, found her way to his hut. The hermit took the fawn in and fed and nurtured her. She grew into a beautiful doe, and the hermit loved her deeply. But after several years together, the deer fell ill from something she'd eaten, and she soon died. The hermit was heartbroken. He cried and cried. He cried for days. A holy man came walking through the valley one day and heard the hermit weeping. What's wrong, my friend, he asked. Why are you weeping? Between sobs, the hermit told him of the story of the fawn and her death. How long ago did your wonderful deer die? asked the holy man. It was a week ago, replied the hermit. Grief is natural when death takes a loved one from us, said the holy man. Tears can help us heal, but tears cannot turn back death. There's a time to grieve and a time to mourn, move on with our lives. You have shed enough tears for your fine friend. Cherish her memory, dry your tears, and live your life. This comforted the hermit greatly. He shared a meal with the wise holy man and went on with his life in the mountain valley. I'm not exactly sure why I decided, well, I, I decided to read this because I just picked up the book before we sat down. And uh, there were a lot of mentions of people passing out of this life. I myself feel a little different today because I've just had the news about, well, maybe a lot different, we'll see. Uh, I just had the news this morning that my friend Geraldine is now beginning her passage out of this life. And I have um, just a sense of Geraldine is 89. She's old enough. She had a full life. She was working until like last week, in fact. She was a psychiatrist, and her, uh, some of her people that she was seeing were coming to her house because she couldn't get out anymore. So, I mean, she had a very wonderful and full life. And I'm beginning to anticipatorily I feel a hole in the fabric of my life where Geraldine used to be. And we just do. And uh, I'm just, and then I saw this, and um, I think I thought immediately of the story of um, the, the students of a particular revered Zen master who found him really crying and inconsolable about the death of his son and uh, said, you know, you've, you've taught us that death is part of the life cycle and it's all coming and going. And his response was, that's true, and I'm very sad. So I really want to put in the, the just some words about there's no rule for how long you're supposed to be sad. Some people are sad long or short or intermittent intermittently sad. I think it's actually 
Uh, we talked about that, I think, a little bit the last time I was here, that the coming and going is not, uh, is not a terrible thing, but it's a poignant thing. It's really poignant. Um, someone was, a friend of mine here this morning was telling me about a friend of hers who just got to be 70. And he's actually in very good health and vital and still working. But he said, I can't get to say I'm in middle age anymore. Not middle aged. I'm old. You know, and, and that, that, that keeps rolling along like that. A friend of mine, uh, husband died a year and a half ago, and she started a, uh, a daily uh, blog, or a daily uh, uh, post on Caring Bridge, because her friends were, during the time of his final illness, she had a post on Caring Bridge. And uh, Caring Bridge, you might know, is a website where people can uh, keep the network of people who are involved with a particular person, up to date on how they are, if they're in the hospital or getting better or not getting better. And then he died a year ago, and uh, she kept up the Daily Post from then until now. Uh, and it was a post about how she was. And uh, uh, it was, I was, as I was reading it daily now for a year and a half, it's a very good lesson for me in the coming and going and the waxing and waning of grief and the times that it waxes again and you think it was gone, but and then something else happens. And uh, just the other day, she and I spoke on the phone and she said, you know, I think it's coming to an end. Uh, and uh, I'll keep it going a little bit and I'll see what happens. But I could hear that in the posts, that her life had begun to take on a kind of a rhythm and normalcy of life without so-and-so, and it had been previously with. I don't know if there's a, a generalization, but I think the it's not only that the mind matures when it really gets or really opens and gets kinder when we realize that this is all about coming and going and that everything is temporal, our lives, everyone's life. And it's poignant to watch how it happens. I frequently am in the position of saying what uh, the original first message I had at a meditation retreat, which I think caused me to continue to explore this path, was a plaque that said, life is so difficult, how can we be anything but kind? And I think the difficulty is we're getting used to loss all the time. We lose this, and then we lose that, we lose youth, we lose dreams, we get other dreams, and we fall in love again, and we get new passions. But it's a lot of getting used to what we weren't used to before. And how to have a heart that supports that and instead of being demoralized by it, is really um, tenderized to kindness. Really makes a space for people. Everybody's doing the same thing. They're getting old and losing this and losing that. That sounds, I'm listening to myself, 
And I'm thinking, that sounds so sad. It's not sad, it's poignant, and it's how we get to be kinder, I'm sure. Realize everybody is struggling around. I've been thinking about two different, two different ways to frame what we talk about today. I hadn't planned to lead with that, but I was just listening to all of our shares and so many people on the edge of leaving this life and into whatever. And I think, so what do we do to keep our hearts steady? So I've been thinking about that. I was thinking about the line from the third Zen patriarchs, third Zen patriarch, where he says, to know the truth, only cease to cherish opinion. So I uh, I didn't listen to the debate last night. How many people listened to it? Did you, a lot of people? How many people didn't listen to it? <laughs> How many people didn't listen purposely? Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. Okay. Uh, I felt a little bit, of, uh, uh, you know, before, I felt a little bit remiss about, uh, I, I have a great faith in... Um, what was the name of that course that we taught? Um, uh, wait, 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 wait. Uh, as spiritual practice, social. I, I, we had a course here at Spirit, at Spirit Rock 20 years ago that I'm in the course of reviving. It'd be nice if I could remember its name. Uh, <laughs> but it was about uh, really learning about what's going on in the world as a spiritual practice. Uh, it's called something like social um, awareness as spiritual practice. or um, But really talking about the fact that we do all vote. How many people voted in the last election and plan to vote? I think it's one of the few things that we can still actually do. Uh, I think it has nothing to do with... Um, Making a choice not to, well, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna assume why you didn't listen. I didn't listen because I find it riling up and I figured I could listen to the news this morning if I wanted to hear what everybody said or I could read the newspaper this morning and I could hear what everybody said and that I, as previously in watching these debates, I haven't found that I learned anything new except that I'm easily affected by, um, by discourse and incivility, and it upsets me. Is that why you didn't listen? Why else did you not listen? Why did you not listen? Oh, and you didn't know it was happening. What else? Coming. And uh, my feeling is manipulated 
I turn on that TV, it really doesn't make me, it makes quick thoughts in my head that I don't even need it to have. So you know what line I was, thank you, you know what line I was going to think about? Uh, there's a line from uh, the Buddha where he says, whatever the mind ponders and wherever it dwells, by that is it shaped. And so if I read about it in the newspaper, and I'm not hearing, hearing it at the same time, it's less riling up. I just find it's uh, just better for my nerves. Uh, and I, I think to myself, uh, I, didn't, I wouldn't have learned anything new. And so I wonder about that. I, I just, as you said, I wonder about it. I also wonder how many people begin, end up voting for um, a party or a person that they didn't think they'd be voting for when this whole thing starts. When you are a registered X or a registered Y, for the most part, you vote like that. So, you know, the, the whole... And I realize this comes back to what would be germane for everybody. I, I didn't want to watch because I, uh, I didn't want to get my, uh, myself riled up. And I get riled up, not because somebody says an opinion that I don't agree with, but that I get frightened. And that's the source of the rile. If I hear people behaving in an incivil way, or if people are behaving in an, uh, uh, a way that seems uneducated or impossible, I get frightened that this or that person might accidentally get to be president of the United States. And, uh, and I realize I have nothing to do about that. The only thing I can do is vote. If I stand in my street and say, don't vote for so-and-so, I could put something on my lawn if I wanted to, but that's about the scope of power that I have. So it's, I think I get frightened. Uh-oh, so-and-so might get to be president. And the only place I could come back from that, which I really was pondering yesterday and today and thinking about from very early this morning, is that's based on thinking that I know, that I that the fear is based on my thought, if that person got to be president, it would be terrible. I don't know. I think so. But I don't know if it would be less terrible the other way. I don't know anything, really. It's, it's all a guess. Now, that's not to say that I don't give a lot of credit to my guessing. I think I have educated guessing. So, that, you know, and I, and I do think so. But I think it's it really, you don't know, I was thinking about all, all the Buddhist pronouncements about to know the truth only cease to cherish opinions. Maybe somebody has some good ideas. Maybe somebody has some nuanced ideas. Maybe someone has another idea. And why do I, I vote, I was thinking uh, it would be interesting to talk about why do I, with someone who I thought was a uh, learned and educated person, why they vote differently from how I vote, based on uh, understandings of social structure. I vote the way I vote, largely, I think it's because of reasons I think my party stands for the right things and the other party stands for the wrong things. But truth to tell, I think I vote the way I do before that because my parents did, and they believed it. And their parents did, and they believed it. I'm always very surprised when I meet people who vote on the other side from me who are very nice people and kind 
and effective in the culture. I can't believe it, you know, really. Because I have, no, no, really, is that not true? Don't you have an idea that so-and-so, that all those people are not nice, mean-spirited, self-preoccupied, not generous? I don't think so, really. It's half the United States, for one thing. I don't think so. But I have that opinion, and why we have an opinion, and, I, you know, you, you, I, I, don't, I don't question it so much. I just take that for granted. All, this, all Democrats are good-hearted, and they share with everybody. All Republicans are not good-hearted, and they're very self-preoccupied. I think that's not true. I think that's not true. So I read a thing, uh, I was thinking about the way that opinions get to be truths that we believe. This is Discover Magazine. So first of all, I've been reading a lot of, um, uh, did you read two weeks ago the uh, article in the New York Times about the Dalai Lama? It's a long article. Very interesting. So right away we'll talk about why that's interesting. Why is it interesting? Not right away, right now. <laughs> He had a birthday cake with his friend George W. Bush. So that's already like a problematic sentence for people. <laughs> Why is that even problematic? I mean, he's just having a birthday cake with George. He shares a birthday with George W. Bush. And he met him at the Presidential Center in Dallas and said... I love George Bush, although as far as his policies are concerned, I have some reservations. All right, that's a tempered thing to say, you know. I want to talk about this particular article. Let me tell you first about this one. It'll set the, uh, it'll set the stage for that one. This is Discover Magazine. And it's an article about archaeology in Israel. And... Uh, it says, uh, and it's princi principally about a man named, uh, a contemporary archaeologist named Israel Finkelstein, an archaeologist at Tel Aviv University, who has championed microarchaeology since the early 1990s. Okay, this is what goes on. It says, uh, um, people went to Israel uh, in this century, in the last century, uh, based on the idea of, uh, really the noblest elements of, of the Bible, democracy and, uh, uh, trial by jury and all kinds of very good things that you can find in the, in the Hebrew Bible. And starting afresh in a country, uh, democracies, building it from the bottom up. One, uh, so he, the uh, Israel Finkelstein, uh, his great-grandparents came from Belarus. They helped make the region's first Zionist agricultural settlement in 1878. Uh, today a working class in Petah Tikva, today a working class neighbor of Tel Aviv. Another set of his, uh, great-grandparents uh, another set of his great-grandparents fleeing the Bolsheviks came from the same land around uh, 1920. 
Finkelstein was born, uh, grew up in a family compound among orange growers and packers in a totally secular atmosphere. But, quote, totally secular atmosphere, but very warm and sweet. The family resembled other Ashkenazi Jews fleeing pogroms and later the Holocaust, and they were set on validating their roots and reclaiming their ancient storied home. But with many Ashkenazis so blonde and light-eyed, so European-looking, it was hard to stake their homeland claim on appearance only. Instead, to claim to create a narrative for the nation they hoped to build, the founders zoomed in on archaeology. Science would authorize their Bible, their legacy, and their right to the land. The most eloquent messenger was Hebrew University archaeologist Yigal Yadin, known for his excavation of Masada, the desert fortress described as a scene of a shameful mass murder of suicide after a failed revolt. By the time that dig ended in 1964, Yadin had transferred the events of, the t of those events into a tale of heroic resistance. So everybody, every young person who goes to Israel goes to Masada to see this heroic place. The chief of staff of the Israel Defense Force, before he became an archaeologist, Yadin had used his new field of archaeology to pump up the volume on Israel's ancient roots, warrior spirit, and right to exist. For Yadin, the story went back to the exodus of the Jewish slaves from Egypt when Moses' general, Joshua, was said to storm the land of Canaan and take it by force. That was the Bible story that Finkelstein, now this is Yadin who said that, Finkelstein, the young uh, generation later, so that was a Bible story that Finkelstein, still a graduate student, found himself revisiting in the 1970s on assignment in the highlands, a mountainous ridge running almost the length of Israel. There, archaeologists had dated the earliest settlement of the Hebrews, you know how they could tell it was the Hebrews? This is so clever. Recognize, how do they know this was a, they, they find settlement over settlement over settlement over here, all of one, one settlement over another, over another, over another. How do they know this is a settlement of Hebrews? Recognized by their lack of pig bones. Because there's a, there's a, pig is a taboo, uh, animal. They don't eat it. By the date of uh, recognizing their lack of pig bones reflecting their pork taboo to perhaps the 13th century BC. Had these people really been slaves in Egypt, returning as invaders at, uh, as Yadin had put forth, you know, really, uh, ancient roots of heroism? Finkelstein found otherwise. Instead of an invasion, the archaeological evidence revealed a gradual evolution from a pastoral to an agricultural society. There was no violent event, no entry from the outside, not one suggestion of an exodus. The Hebrews were the Canaanites who had never left. So that's a very interesting story. How many people let my people go? Um, and God spoke to Moses. He said, let my people go, take them. Uh, we we all saw Moses in Egypt, the movie, uh, Pr Moses, Prince of Egypt. How many people saw it? How many people thought, don't you remember the big movie? It was, uh, no, no, not Exodus. 
Moses, prince of Egypt. The, it was the Ten Commandments. It was earlier. It's a Disney movie. It's a cartoon movie. Remember the cartoon movie, Disney movie, Chariot Race? The little cradle that Moses' mother put him in the cradle and sending it down the river. There was no Moses. There was no cradle. There was no river. There was no nothing. There was no Moses who was a prince of Egypt. The Canaanites were the early Hebrews, and they were always there. They didn't leave and come back. They were there. Layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. So you think, how many people here, when people quote, as Moses said, think there was a real Moses? Are you used to it? Yeah. yeah there's a real Moses. So how is it? Someone says, you know, there was no Moses. In, in all, I, I heard this years ago, there was no, in all of the Egyptian archives, there's no records of a Moses who was a prince at any point, was part of the Pharaoh's household, who led a group of people out from slavery. It's just not part of the Egyptian history. It became incorporated as part of uh, Israel's history because it got written in. It didn't happen. This is what this particular this is what this particular archaeology. But can you? Can, I was thinking about how much it's in the mind, its imagery. Then I thought, well, what I really began to think about was, okay, so there really wasn't a Moses who. But I thought about how the idea of uh, slaves, people being enslaved, and People being enslaved and going out of slavery and to freedom is a very good uh, legend. It's a very good uh, metaphor. It's the same metaphor that the Buddha had in a certain way in, uh, in the, the, the Four Noble Truths. He said, really, suffering is the imperative in the, imperative in the mind that things have to be other than what they are. And that imperative is a habit of mind. The third noble truth is that peace is possible. We can change the habits of our mind. We can go out from suffering. Really, that uh, it's interesting to me because uh, oh, part of my uh, part of my work for the last twenty years, probably you know about this, is uh, I particularly have had the opportunity to to teach mindfulness and not only mindfulness but really the uh, philosophy of the Buddha uh, in other religious venues primarily in uh, in 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 Jewish venues because I'm also a Jew and I know a fair amount about Judaism but also in Christian venues I teach a lot in Unitarian churches and all kinds of churches because uh, the idea of a mind that echoes the wish for peace for oneself and peace for other people is really the point and the, uh, the end point of all of the major religious traditions that I know. And that metaphor of going from habits of the mind that enslave it to freedom is a very useful metaphor. It's really that uh, going out from, from being enslaved to being free was uh, uh, one of the roots of Gandhi's work, was one of the roots of the civil rights movement. So maybe it's not such a bad idea, that story. Maybe, as a myth goes, 
it's good if it's helpful. Maybe it's not as helpful if you think of it as a myth. Maybe it has more power if you think it's true. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can see that also. Every time you have bad and good. And, but and anyway, even if you said, well, that was in the time of the pharaohs, we were slaves unto pharaoh in Egypt. But I think the pharaoh lives in our own mind. And we can really say the pharaoh is all of those habits that keep regenerating themselves in our own mind. But, you know, does it matter to you that there is or that religious stories are myths or truths? Uh, my, uh, uh, colleague, uh, Alan Jones, who retired as the dean of Grace Cathedral a couple of years ago. So he was a uh, dean of an Episcopal cathedral. And I, I thought his teachings were splendid, and his book is wonderful. And in his book, he says about the Christian story, um, I don't believe the story, but I am a believer. When you, when you, when you hear that, I don't believe the story, but I am a believer. And a, and a bunch of people nodded yes. What do you think he meant? What did he believe? He didn't think Jesus was the Son of God. Well, that's the, the story that he doesn't believe, but what do you think he did believe when he said, I don't believe the story, but I am a believer? In what? There you go. Two people, <laughs> two people simultaneously said the essence of the teaching. How would you cap, the essence is not that, I was going to say it's hard to capture an essence. What do you think the essence of the Christian message is? We're coming up on Christmas. Redemption, Redemption uh, forgiveness, kindness, kindness yeah. mercy, Grace. golden rule, love one another as I have loved you is what Jesus said. That's a very wonderful thing to say. Love one another as I have loved you. Susan. Um, I think that one of the reasons we get so upset with the, uh, you know, the debates, listening to some of the people's truth is that, for me anyway, when I'm thinking about peace on earth and love and kindness and not having enslavement, yeah. that some of these candidates feel to me like they're speaking the opposite. Yeah. We must have enslavement. We must get rid of certain people. Yeah. We must get them out of here. Um, you know, there's an aggression, not a kindness. Yeah. And I think that's hard to say, well, that's just a, you know. No, I think that, I think that, uh, uh, I'm going to say over because the people listening on the, on uh, all around who, who listen to this tape will not hear that uh, Susan was saying that uh, one of the things that's difficult with the debates is it sounds uh, sometimes like the message is there are good people and bad people and the good people are good and the other people will have to get rid of or worse, um, keep out or worse. I'm just thinking about the, the do, you need a, do you need a story to be true? Uh, it, like, let's take the story of, the story of, uh, Moses in a basket getting sent down the river and rescued. 
uh, the story of Jesus in a manger uh, and, and uh, wise men coming to uh, worship him. Uh, they're lovely stories. Uh, a friend of mine who's not living anymore said, um, actually a, a rabbi of some renown, Actually, the husband of the woman who's been keeping a blog for a year and a half, uh, actually a rabbi of great renown, a long time ago uh, said to me, he was also a good friend of mine, and uh, very interested in the fact that I was teaching Buddhism and Buddhist psychology and mindfulness. And uh, some people uh, actually had a problem about syncretism too, two religions, how can you do two religions, but you can. Uh, uh, and he said, uh, be sure, and now there's a, a fair amount of talk about uh, secular mindfulness, mindfulness without the story. And a long time ago, he said to me, so do you have a Sunday school at Spirit Rock? Are you teaching people the story of the Buddha and his, uh, and his birth and his growing up and his story? And he said, do that. He said, be sure to do that. And he said, because um, a religion without a story is going to be one, is going to be one generation, is going to last one generation. That the, that, that it gets passed along from generation to generation because of the story, because of the born in a manger, sent down in a basket, uh, three wise men come. Because there's a level of the unconscious where we are really moved by those stories. Rabbi Zalman Shachter Shalomi said it to me in a private communication 20 years ago. He said, don't just teach mindfulness, teach the Buddha story. Whether or not it's true. You know, I, I don't actually think the Buddha, I don't think it's true. I think it's true there was a Buddha. I don't think that he was born, stood on his two feet, took seven steps forward, and said, this is my last incarnation. I actually, I, you know, I don't think that's necessary. <laughs> but it's a great story. I don't mind telling it. Yeah. May I read something Leonard Cohen said about Jesus Christ? Yes. Absolutely. I, the only thing I, I'm not even sure about is the Jewish view of Jesus Christ. Uh, I, I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't think there is a Jewish view of Jesus Christ other than the, I don't know, maybe this is a myth as well, that he was not universally accepted in the Jewish community, that some of the Jews, his first followers were Jews, and others of them said, this is not the Messiah that we were waiting for, but um, uh, not that he was a bad person or that that particular teaching wasn't right. Who knows what happened after that? But to have, 
No, I, but really, I love that from... Uh, I love also from... I'm just I'm thinking about the... the, the um, I had like my mind went ding, 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 because it touched three things when you were saying that. The, my favorite Leonard Cohen line is, um, even though it all goes wrong, I'll stand before the Lord of Song with nothing on my tongue but hallelujah. That's an amazing point of view. How could we do this and have nothing on our tongue but hallelujah? How can we watch the debates and have nothing on our tongue but hallelujah? And it isn't hallelujah for these particular people, it's hallelujah for people. Hallelujah for ideas, hallelujah for for life. Um, oh, you know, I, it could have been otherwise, but it's like this. People walking around. Do you ever hear Jack Cornfield every once in a while launches into, you ever think how weird people are? At, bipedal animals marching around on their hind legs, putting stuff in this hole in the top of their body that comes out of a hole at the other end of the body. <laughs> You know, his whole description of it is, you know, like an elephant coming along in his trunk, picking a fruit, sticking it in the mouth. So, of course, people have minds and people have thoughts, and we make them in charge of their thoughts. It's their fault because they did this, because they believed that. Uh, people do things because they believe it, and sometimes they're terribly wrong. But should, you know, what can be our response that would be helpful? You know, people... People open fire and Planned Parenthood clinics. What would be a helpful response? You know, not that's not a rhetorical question. I don't know. I, I think always education and compassion. Those. Anyway, what were you going to say, Elizabeth? <laughs> That's very interesting. Uh, I, huh? <laughs> Maybe it's like sexual orientation. I, I, I think it's Tom Hartman who has a book about why you are liberal or conservative. Never mind talk about Democrats or Republicans. Liberal or conservative, and what kind of worldview shapes that. I want to make sure to mention this article with the with the Dalai Lama, because the question I really think I'm, I don't know the answer to this. I'm thinking out loud with you. What if uh, it never happened? If uh, "Let My People Go" uh, was a, a precedent to the civil rights movement that isn't finished by all means. We have not finished racism in this country. But we've made some historic changes in how we deal with them. I have tremendous faith in the television as doing a big piece of that, as a television, as a mass medium for teaching people. Television is remarkably diverse more and more. More and more people are together with more and more people. So I, I think, I think change is going to happen, but slowly. Um, what if it's not true? Does it inspire? The, the religion that doesn't have a story is only one generation long. Like, for instance, uh, how many people saw the movie Kundun? I saw it just recently, 
at, um, uh, and I see it periodically, and I always think differently about it. Kundun is a name, it's an affectionate name that the uh, close people to the Dalai Lama, this current Dalai Lama, called him from when he was born because it was a name earlier given to him by some soothsayer. And uh, so it's a recreation of the first 20 years of the life of this current Dalai Lama who is just now 80 years old and being celebrated all over the all over the world for that. And in it, I, I, I really felt myself noticing a couple of things about the movie this time. I hadn't seen it in a few years. One is that there was a particular scene in the movie that I remembered because I had quoted it so many times about how, uh, how this young Dalai Lama recites the Four Noble Truths. And I thought it was so wonderful. And I, re and I many times taught it here and there and everywhere that he, he characterized the second noble truth instead of saying life is suffering as the first and the cause of suffering is um, clinging or craving, which is a standard way to do it. He said, I said, I am the cause of most of my suffering because of the habits of my own mind. And I said, isn't that wonderful? So a young child say a thing like that. Really terrific. It's, I says, I, I, I know because I said it more than once. What a terrific thing for an eight-year-old to have that insight. And then I would always say it's a terrific thing for a 40-year-old to have that insight because it's, you know. Then I saw the movie and he didn't say it. <laughs> I made it up. So I am, um, because that's what I would say. I think that's a really great thing to say. But it's, he said something sort of like that, but not that. But it was so interesting to me that I taught it any number of times and said, that's what he said. Don't know. Okay. So, so much for I'm positive that he said and I'm positive I did. I also did not remember how many times in that recreation, it's just a recreation, but nevertheless, it's infused with the spirit that I'm sure that this Dalai Lama gave to his writers. There are many times where he says, uh, the young Dalai Lama says to his, uh, his uh, teachers or his regents who are taking care of him, uh, I won't do it that way. And they say, okay, as you wish, because he's the Dalai Lama. And this time then I saw it and he says, as you wish. And they actually had some good idea about how he should be doing. I thought to myself, he's a child. Tell him no. You know, that... Uh, you know, that uh, or uh, even all the way along until he's 20 years old and he's leaving. And they say, you should leave now, it's getting difficult, and he won't leave. And maybe if he would have left a little bit earlier, it would have been a little easier. And they say, as you wish, because he isn't a human, really. He's a, um, in, in the minds of his people. And uh, so I thought two things about it. First of all, maybe, uh, maybe that, uh, uh, venerating somebody on the basis of a story is not such a wise idea always. But also, um, when does, okay, have it your way, become passive rather than active? And how much do we uh, really uh, respond to our lives with um, 
by not acquiescing. When is the time to stop acquiescing is what I was thinking about. I was thinking about it because I don't remember if I said here a few weeks ago or if somebody told me, that, oh, I know, a few weeks ago, um, Tony Bernhardt was here. Were you here when Tony was talking about her new book? And the last thing she talked about was she quoted uh, Krishnamurti, who was a teacher of some note mid-century, who was acclaimed to be this really uh, liberated person. They said, great tranquility. I never saw him or uh, heard him in person, but uh, apparently, according to Tony, according to one of her sources, he had leaned forward in one of his teachings and said to somebody sitting quite near to him, do you want to know my secret? And they said, yes. And he said, I don't mind anything. So I thought about that. I thought, wow, don't mind anything. And uh, I actually thought two things. Uh, first, I thought uh, about uh, Ajahn Jamnian, who's a Buddhist uh, monk in the uh, Thai tradition, who used to come here to teach quite regularly. Now he's old and not so much on the traveling trail. But he would frequently say, as he was sitting up here, everything, it, it has to, everything is okay with me. He said, you know, uh, if uh, a lot of people can't come to hear me, like today, a lot of people have come. I'm happy about that. If nobody comes, I'm happy about that. Then I can sit quietly and meditate. And if a lot of people come and they bring really good food for the lunch, I'm happy because you can see I'm a little bit um, round and I really like to eat. And if nobody comes with the lunch and nobody brings any good food, I'm happy about that because, as you can see, I'm a little bit round and a little bit of dieting is good for me. So when Tony said that Krishnamurti said that I don't mind anything, what flashed in my mind is, um, <laughs> first of all, uh, uh, Ajahn Jamnian saying, uh, I don't mind anything. Oh, I don't mind. And at the same time, I thought about the Maurice Zendak poem, Pierre. You know Pierre? Who does not know Pierre? There you go. <laughs> there once was a boy named Pierre who only would say, I don't care. Read the story, my friend, for you'll find at the end of, at, at the end that a suitable moral lies there. One day, his mother said when Pierre climbed out of bed, Good morning, darling boy. You are my only joy. Pierre said, I don't care. What would you like to eat? I don't care. Some lovely cream of wheat. I don't care. Don't sit backwards in your chair. I don't care. Or pour syrup on your hair. I don't care. You're acting like a clown. I don't care. We have to go to town. I don't care. Do you want to come, my dear? I don't care. Would you rather stay right here? I don't care. So his mother left him there. So we'll skip the next one because it's much the same. But his mother and father leave. Now as night began to fall, a hungry lion paid a call. He looked Pierre right in the eye and asked him if he'd like to die. Pierre said, I don't care. I can eat you, don't you see? I don't care. And you'll be inside of me. I don't care. Then you'll never have to bother. I don't care. With a mother or a father. I don't care. Is that all you have to say? I don't care. Then I'll eat you, if I may. I don't care. And the lion ate Pierre. Arriving home at 6 o'clock, his parents had a dreadful shock. They found the lion sick in bed and cried, 
They found the lion sick in bed and cried, Pierre is surely dead. They pulled the lion by the hair. They hit him with a folding chair. The mother asked, where is Pierre? The lion answered, I don't care. <laughs> His father said, Pierre's in there. They rushed the lion into town. The doctor shook him up and down, and when the lion gave a roar, Pierre fell out upon the floor. He rubbed his eyes and scratched his head and laughed because he wasn't dead. His mother cried and held him tight. His father said, are you all right? Pierre said, I am feeling fine. Please take me home. It's half past nine. The lion said, if you would care to climb on me, I'll take you there. Then everyone looked at Pierre, who shouted, yes, indeed, I care. The lion took them home to rest and stayed on as a weekend guest. So I've been carrying that around with me since we, at the same time that Tony quoted Krishnamurti and I thought of Ajahn Jamnian, I also thought of Pierre. And I thought uh, what I really wanted to talk about is the difference between not minding and not caring. Uh, and. What I really wanted to talk about, just to elevate this before the people, these people, you people here and anybody who's listening to me, think, what does this have to do with Buddhism? It has to do with the main, uh, maintaining the mind in equanimity. That, uh, the thing that is, uh, the thing that has, uh, in large measure replaced the notion of an external God some god up there that made all of this and is watching it like a cosmic policeman, uh, is the idea that there are certain divine traits that actually human beings can embody to the degree that we think divine in terms of they're, they're sublime. They're the highest level of functioning. We think of in, in a classical way of thinking about uh, a hierarchy of people and angels and God being literally here and there and really there. I think that thinking about uh, qualities of goodness and kindness in people as being here and here and really here. Um, in the beginning, uh, in the, oh, I, I think uh, somewhere around 1960, 70, began to be uh, psychologists who began to talk about transpersonal psychology. We have personal psychology, what's going on intrapsychically, and interpersonal psychology, what goes on in our relationships, and transpersonal psychology, meaning uh, uh, being aware of those qualities, um, those mind states and heart states that are possibilities for human beings. Human beings can um, experience awe. I've been, I, I have this necklace 10 years. I, have, I only saw it once 10 years ago in a Smithsonian catalog, and I got it since then. I haven't seen it anywhere, and I, I, it's my favorite thing. Uh, and it makes people happy because it's a rainbow. And when I wear it, it stops people. When I wear it in elevators or in waiting rooms, I, it, it doesn't pass a day without people say, wow, I love that. People love rainbows because they're amazing. Look at that. So I think that's what you know, escalators people pass is, whoa. You know. 
so you could make a lot of conclusions about that I'm a show-off and all that. But I, we already know that, so that is no, that's, that doesn't matter. But I like to make people feel happy, so I wear it, and it makes me feel happy. But we go out. Did you see the moon last night? The moon is about three days old. Is that not the best moon? It's the best. It's better than a quarter moon or a half moon or a full moon. That moon, not even the end moon, which is the same amount, but this is the best moon. And I, and I see it. Doesn't your heart pick up when you see it? Such a beautiful thing hanging there in the sky. And, and we look at it and it looks like a crescent hanging in the sky, doesn't it? We think it's a crescent. It's a moon, but, <laughs> but the light is shining on it in the way that it looks like a crescent. So in that moment, it, it, you know, it just looks like all those moons that have angels sitting on it. We know it's a moon. But the qualities of awe, the qualities of wonder, when we come around to January and the crocuses come up, say, how do they know to do that, you know? How did they know it's January? How did they know the light is just right? So human beings have that capacity for awe and wonder, which stop the mind from its imperative of uh, finding right or being all whipped up. You see, you stop in your tracks. That's what awe does. You stop in your tracks and you think, okay. Maybe it's like a mindfulness bell, awe, or wonder. How did this all happen? What's going on? What will happen with this planet as it heats up? Maybe it won't heat up now that everybody has signed that. Maybe it'll heat up slower. Maybe they'll figure out how to cool it. Uh, as people are beginning to talk about, well, we could do this, we could do that. Those are parts of transpersonal psychology, not from just at the awareness of being in the world. And the awareness of the possibility of uh, our best, um, I don't even want to say best, our most liberating um, feelings, that when my own mind is in a good shape, uh, when my own mind is balanced enough and I am not frightened, it's not so hard for me to think good thoughts for people. I was thinking... Um, I was surprised to find uh, that I was really thinking uh, empathic. I wouldn't, I, I, I don't want to upgrade it from that. Thinking empathically about those nine people who were about to debate. I was leaving home to go to a movie, uh, which I'll talk about in a minute. But I was leaving home purposely to miss it because I don't, I don't like the tension of watching. And in my family, they watch, so I left. Uh, but I was feeling badly for those people debating. I think they're so tense, and they're just all of them working so hard to try to survive this. And it must be so hard. Every day, another audience. Every day, another person talking bad about them, another person insulting them. So hard to put yourself in the crossfire. And I, you know, I, I was happy, actually. I don't know if I was happy, but in that moment of feeling a little bit of empathy for them, wow, they have to do this, I wasn't thinking about them. The thing that I think really most of all is that our own good heart is the ultimate safest refuge. I don't know if the planet's going to stay in the right 
in the right heat and cool pattern. I don't know if some country isn't going to run amok and do something terrible. But I think actually that in the end, the best defense is our own response, not even defense. The best response is our own good heart. You know, this is what just what people are doing. Throughout history, people have done terrible things. Masses of people have done masses of terrible things. There weren't so many terrible weapons, so they didn't have such extraordinary ways to end the globe. This is, this is an extraordinary time. But the heart that we have now is the same heart that I think we had always. Human beings have the possibility of that divine quality of equanimity out of which comes compassion. The equanimity is not based on saying everything is okay, because it's not. A lot of it's terrible. The equanimity is based on saying this is what's happening. It's a lawful cosmos. This is what's happening because this is what happened up to now. And it takes out the good and the bad. This is good, this is bad. The movie I went to see was Peggy Guggenheim, Art Addict. And um, I went because I saw the Guggenheim exhibit when I was in Venice uh, several months ago. And it's a fantastic museum. It's a small museum. It was her home. It, uh, it's an incredible museum because you go by a doorway and you think, oh, that's a Paul Clay over there. And I'll go over and look at it. And sure enough, it is, because he was a friend of hers. And on your way in, you think, oh, that's a Miro. And that's a this, and that's a that. It's as if she went to a supermarket of great art, said, I'll have one of those, and one of those, and one of those, and one of those. And I realized, and I was thinking to myself, as the movie unfolded, I don't think it's a great movie, uh, and you learn about her personal life, you know, you could have some, it was possible, how am I, I'm getting, trying not to say, I had some thoughts about the fact that she just came into tons and tons of money and really did go around by this, that, and the other. And I had some ignoble thoughts about that. <laughs> but you know what, I caught myself thinking in the end. The people who were going through it, including me, myself, because I went twice in the few days that I was there, it doesn't matter if she was noble or ignoble or uh, she didn't work for her money or she did or it was ill-gotten gains of her grandfather or whatever it was. It's beside the point. A lot of people are enjoying that good art now because she made a museum and she gave it out to be a museum. And that's what it is. It's a museum in the city of Venice. And I could just enjoy it if I had all these extra thoughts about what kind of a person she was, what kind of a life she had. It like clouds up the mind. There's a line also in the uh, Third Zen Patriarch that says, the tedious practice of judging and comparing clouds the mind and something, something else I've forgotten. Judging and comparing, just said, this is what it is. I don't need to have a thought about that. So I didn't say that the Dalai Lama said maybe Buddhism has used itself up. Maybe Buddhism, organized religion. He said um, about himself, um, the world picture, he said, um, he said, maybe we have to change Buddhism. Maybe it's outdated. Talked about 
killing in the name of religions. And he said, even Buddhists in Burma are tormenting the Rohingya Muslims. He said, this is why I'm turning away from organized religion, and I'm interested in quantum physics, and I really am interested in the secular values of compassion. And I've heard him say that um, for a couple of years now. I, I particularly know it because uh, he says it in a very sweet way to my ear. Uh, he speaks good English you know, in, the, in the cadence of people uh, whose uh, original language is Tibetan. But it's hard for him to say um, TH because it's not a sound that's in the Tibetan alphabet. So he's been talking a lot about people. He said, it doesn't worry me what religion people are. He said, I really think a lot about it. The, the thing that counts is whether or not they have ethical behavior. So I always hear him talk about ethical. And it's so cute. It's a very sweet way to say ethical. It can't, so ethical behavior, he said, that's what interests me. And I think to myself, in this multi-varied, very overcrowded world, ethical behavior would be really good for everybody to have. And fundamentally, it seems to me quite clear that we, ethical, beha ethical behavior is what we teach children as they're growing up. No, no, this is mine, this is his, you have to share, you don't take what people don't give you, all of that. And we learn that just because they're the conventions of a civil society. And when we grow up, we get to realize that we do that because it's kind. And it's an expression of really recognizing that unless the whole of the globe has some base level realization of ultimately there's no other way that we can live together except as friends and family, which requires that we treat each other with kindness. So we're over our time, but that's what I'm interested in these days. Be, be very interesting, I think, for the whole Western Buddhist community that started in 50 years ago in the 1960s and 70s, really wanting to meditate so that they could develop altered states and be transported out of this everyday, workaday world, if it ends up really ethical behavior is what actually makes people happy. When you take um, uh, refuges and precepts, one of the things you say is, uh, when you finish reciting them, is you say, may these refuges and precepts be the cause of happiness. How many people have ever taken formal refuges and precepts? You know what? I'll teach them next week. That does not, don't stay away. I mean, it's not going to accidentally make you a Buddhist. It's not like signing up. Nor am I indoctrinating anybody. It's just an interesting meditation. So we'll do that together. Have a good week. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.